This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 81 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Dale Drew. He's Chief Security Officer at Zeo Group, a global provider of communications, co-location, and cloud infrastructure. Previously, he's held leadership positions at some of the largest and most influential telecommunications companies in the world, including CenturyLink, Level 3, and MCI. He shares with us the story of his unlikely start in the security industry, starting with a stolen family checkbook and leading to a position with the Arizona Attorney General's office, working to fight organized crime and racketeering. We'll get his views on threat intelligence, and we'll learn why he's leading an effort to champion open-source tools in the industry. Stay with us. I've been pretty fortunate in my career that I've had a a pretty steadfast uh, focus on uh, security and cybersecurity since uh, the very beginning. I'd say... I'd say since even high school, my my first cybercrime investigation was uh, when I was in high school. Um, hmm. My uh, my mother's checkbook uh, was stolen, or a, uh, a set of checks that were delivered to her uh, were taken from the mail, and and they they only took a, a portion of the checks out of the the box, and so it, it took a while for us to discover. But um, but law enforcement was was sort of um, not really able to help much back then. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was, uh, gosh, I think I was a, a sophomore in high school. And, uh, and so I took it upon myself to conduct my own, my own investigation. I went, mm. uh, I, took, I took all the canceled checks. Uh, I went to all the stores where those checks were, were cashed. Mostly they were cashed for cash. Uh, I asked the stores for uh, video uh, of uh, the person cashing the checks, and I'd say in most cases they agreed. Hmm. Was able to get uh, a husband and wife uh, that were cashing the checks, and in one case we they store manager recognized who they were and provided a name, and then I provided a sort of a, an investigation uh, profile to um, the police um, and to the local FBI office. Uh, which they uh, then re- uh, resulted in arrest, and from that point, I was hooked. I was, uh, <laughs> I was uh, on on task. So, did, did they provide you with a shiny junior investigator badge or something like that? <laughs> yeah, no, they were they were very appreciative and and uh, you know very encouraging, and and I, I took that that feedback, uh, you know, very eagerly, and mm-hmm. um, and so when I went to uh, college, you know, there there was no computer security. Uh, degree programs or, you know, cybersecurity wasn't even, you know, on the lips of, um, of uh, most people. So I went to a, a technical college to get a computer science degree. And uh, while I was there, I, again, you know, just got a little uh, sort of um, uh, audacious. And I wrote a proposal uh, for the U.S. Secret Service to create a cybercrime division hmm. uh, and conduct a cybercrime uh, investigation. And I was going to do it as a school project. Handed in the proposal, um, met with them, met with uh, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and uh, that turned into a job offer. 
And uh, that resulted in something called Operation Sun Devil, which was uh, like a two-year investigation. And at the time, it was the nation's largest uh, cybercrime investigation. Hmm. Um, we we did um, – gosh, what was it? It was – I think it was like 27 arrests in 23 states, uh, mostly focused on uh, credit card fraud and calling card fraud, which were pretty rampant uh, hmm. back then. So what, what, what was the state of, of cybercrime at the time? What, what was the state of the art? I mean, we were – computers were still uh, relatively uh, unsophisticated back then. Uh, yeah, and, you know, and I'd say that – you know, that uh, it, it was truly the Wild West. I mean, um, you know, so the the Internet was uh, was not not really uh, taking off at that moment. Um, the, the global data networks at the time were both modems uh, as well as uh, the, these things called X25 networks. And so if you were a large company and uh, you wanted to uh, uh, to talk to customers or you want to talk to other companies, you connected to these global uh, X25 networks and X25 is just a protocol like, like IP is a protocol. But, mm. um, and so, you know, from a law enforcement perspective, I, when I, I was at the U S secret service and then I was with the, uh, attorney general's office, both doing cybercrime investigations and, and the state of the art was, uh, you know, that, that was essentially the information needs to be free, um, you know, era. And that's right. where hackers were, um, were, were prominent. They were exploring. They, uh, you know, and the doors were relatively unlocked. And so, most companies either had modem banks that allowed their employees to connect to them, or they were connected to these sort of uh, X25 networks. And that, that's how the bad guys were, would get in. Hmm. So you move on from there. What was the next step in your career? Uh, I, well, I then went to the Arizona Attorney General's office. Um, it's a little fun fact: is that uh, in uh, the state of Arizona, specifically Tucson, at the time, uh, Tucson had the largest number of retired mafia bosses than any other place in the nation. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, I doubt and so the I, uh, the uh, I doubt the Chamber of Commerce put that on their masthead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so um, you know, I worked in the organized crime and racketeering division, uh, and we handled all computer crime investigations relating to organized crime and racketeering. And, uh, you know, and at the time, uh, you know, in, in Arizona for, for retired mafia bosses, it was, uh, you know, drug running and they would use computers to do all the books. It was what, what they call boiler room investigations, which is when they would call people and try to scam them out of money by selling them fake products. Right. Just to get their credit card and charge something to the credit card. And then, you know, more traditional hacking like, you know, um, them um, even even then they they were dialing into hospitals and trying to either modify or take hospital records, hmm. uh, and so it was all those sort of manner of investigations, both the investigative part as well as the forensics recovery part, and uh, that was uh, sort of my primary responsibility there. I see, and then eventually uh, you shifted over to the telecommunications sector. Yeah, and so you know uh, when I was. Doing Sun Devil, we sort of encountered this uh, relatively notorious hacking group called Legion of Doom and another one called Masters of Deception. Mm, I, I remember and, both of those. Yeah. And so they were they were based out of New Jersey and New York, um, and they had a bit of a, of a competition going on. And they were laying waste to companies um, all around the globe um, trying to uh, demonstrate you know, each group was was saying that they could hack more companies than the other group, and so as a result, they were just 
rifling through as many companies as they possibly could, causing damage and vandalism and uh, intellectual property theft. And and so at, with Sun Devil, we, we had touched on um, investigating those organizations at the attorney general's office. I sort of continued it. But they had compromised a company called TimeNet. And, um, and so TimeNet was this, you know, it was one of the large global X25 networks and they had, um, offered me to come in and I, I saw an opportunity to sort of migrate to the private sector and stop cybercrime before it became a law enforcement problem. And so that's sort of the, the path that I moved down. I wanted to be a lot more proactive, um, and law enforcement's a very reactive sort of, you know, situation. So I moved into a bit more of a proactive cybercrime uh, and investigated the Legion of Doom and Masters of Deception through TimeNet. And uh, we were responsible for uh, the arrest of both of those uh, organizations um, after a two-year investigation at um, uh, TimeNet. So you've really seen this evolution on the telecommunications side from the analog switching centers to this fully digital place where we are today. Uh, yep, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and and it's you know evolved quite significantly from, you know, from being sort of a playground for uh, for teenagers uh, to being a highly commoditized um, infrastructure used by organized crime in nation states for competitive purposes uh, and for intelligence gathering. And so it's it's it has it is it has significantly evolved uh, and you know almost become weaponized. So what are your responsibilities these days at Zeo Group? What's your day-to-day like there? Well, so, I mean, I've been involved in the telecommunications industry for, you know, 27 years or so, um, and uh, mostly focused on, you know, sort of the largest of the large, right? Uh, the, those companies that own the largest whatever, the largest um, uh, internet network, the, you know, the largest content distribution network, and mostly just trying to get proactive on uh, finding ways of protecting that infrastructure, detecting the bad guys, uh, sharing that information with the community, and trying to to curtail uh, the happenings. And so, um, I now work for a company called Zeo, which is a, a global tele- a global telecommunications company, and it's it has a really sort of innovative startup feel uh, to it, which I love. Um, and so, I'm taking that energy and. And uh, using it not only to protect, you know, my sort of my bread and butter, protect the the infrastructure, protect the company, um, but also try to find a, again use those mechanisms to find a way to be proactive with the industry and share information with the industry. And so the company's been gracious enough to sort of allow me to to, to you know to do some of these things at the company's behest. But um, but you know, as an example, I'd say the two things that that I'm really working on is um, uh, an, an open source initiative. I'm trying to convert almost the entirety of our security architecture to open source um, and and build a use case model that uh, other companies can use, whether they're a global uh, networking company like us or whether they're a really small company, can use that model to get sort of top shelf or world-class protection um, at a fraction of the cost that they're getting it uh, today by going to you know the 75 or 80 vendors uh, that most uh, CISOs have to manage to protect their infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, my, my objective is really to bring top-shelf security to the masses, you know, and do it as, as an open-source initiative, you know, not selling it as a product or a service, but, you know, trying to provide a guide for people of, of um, you know, if security is your part-time job or your full-time job, here's how you can get 
world-class security at a fraction of the cost. Hmm. And so I'm pretty passionate about that. I'd say the other thing that, that I'm focused on is trying to mature governance, risk, and compliance. Th- that, that's the emerging field in security right now is not only the implementation of the infrastructure, but governing it and validating the effectiveness of that infrastructure. And that's, that's this you know, GRC you know, discipline. Um, and in my mind, there's absolutely no standards uh, to it whatsoever. It's it's the most um, ambiguous uh, discipline that that I've that I've seen. Mm-hmm. It's really hard uh, to get consistency and expectations for how you mature a platform like that. And so, you know, di- different customers want different certifications, and they want uh, you know different questionnaires. And it's really hard to get predictability in how you mature your platform when you can't build a single way of of validating your infrastructure and showing transparency to customers. And so, um, you know, I'm going to be spending as much energy as I can trying to convince the industry to have a single way of, uh, of doing that. The best world in my environment would be there's a single security certification, maybe even with a bunch of addendums for different environments, but a single security certification for everybody. Because right now the industry has got about 16 to 18 different security certifications uh, and it's all based on the, you know, the, the personal likes or dislikes of a particular security organization. And so, you know, you have to manage an infrastructure at tremendous cost in order to satisfy the transparency of customers. From your experience at, at those high-level uh, telecommunications companies, I mean, you've worked with Quest, you worked with Level 3, CenturyLink, MCI, the, the real big names are there things that uh, insights that you can share for folks who don't have a window into that world, the, the types of things that they're contending with today when it comes to uh, trying to keep us all safe out there? Yeah, I, I'd say that that telecommunications companies are sort of on a very unique uh, battlefront. And so anytime that you have a company that sells a large shared environment, shared platform, um, that is sort of the on-ramp and off-ramp for a lot of customers – the issue specifically is is that is that you get both you know your your main attack vectors are organized crime and nation states, hmm. and so so I'll, I'll give you a great example is is um, if if I'm if I'm an organized crime uh, boss, I have two choices. I can either break into tens of thousands of uh, personal computers. And modify those computers so that when they go to, you know, um, mybank.com, it'll actually send it to um, evilbank.com instead. Mm-hmm. And that's where the organized crime uh, group has got a fake bank uh, web page that looks like the MyBank page. And it'll ask for your account information and your name and password. And now they've got access to your account. So I can either break into tens of thousands of computers and do that or – I can just break into a telecommunications company and modify the DNS, their their domain name server, um, of their network, which controls resolving the address for anyone who's going through that network. Mm. So now, in one spot, I can I can manipulate the behavior of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of users to go to my uh, evil uh, bank address. And so uh, that motivation is really, really high. And and we've seen organized crime syndicates that have got more people uh, in their staff designed to go after telecommunications companies 
than there are staff in the security organization of those telecommunications companies. Um, and so that is just a daily back and forth battle uh, of them looking for ways to commoditize uh, uh, the the actual network infrastructure. And then same thing with nation states. I mean, nation states use that infrastructure as a launch pad um, to be able to gain access to both companies and uh, government uh, providers because that's the network that, that provides that sort of on-ramp and off-ramp access. And so we've seen things like, and it's just, you know, it's, it's silly things, but we've seen things like I was working at a telecommunications company where we would pay attention to infrastructure bids, meaning when uh, countries or uh, regional locations would ask for assistance in, in helping to reshape or rebuild their infrastructure, solar, uh, energy, transportation, or whatever. Because whenever we saw a bid, a very large infrastructure bid, we would see countries participating in that bid process, you know, hire, you know, hire this company in the U.S. For, for your solar needs. What would happen, though, is that nation states would see those, those, uh, those bids and break into those companies and steal their intellectual property and steal the bid and then do competitive bids using their own technology and shortcutting the bid process. Hmm. So we would always see a huge uptick in, in technology compromises and intellectual property compromises during things like you know, infrastructure bid processes. Those sorts of things don't don't naturally come to the attention of, you know, the average user, but are sort of bread and butter for for telecommunications companies. Hmm. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, threat intelligence and and get your take on it. Uh, What part do you think threat intelligence plays in an organization's attempts to protect themselves? You know, I, I think until I, I think that that threat intelligence is playing a much more pivotal role. Um, especially as that that environment and that process sort of matures, you know. And I'll I'll give you an example. I mean, I I, I recently uh, came to uh, Zao and I'm sort of assessing the security environment. But the very first thing I did is I subscribed to to half a dozen threat feeds um, and analyzed those feeds in comparison to my environment to see if the industry was seeing any attacks coming from my infrastructure. Um, and uh, that provides a really good checkpoint for not only validation that your security controls are working, uh, but sort of this, this, it takes a community, it takes a village to protect the internet. And so, you know, I think that, that the, that the direction that threat intelligence is, is moving in and moving in uh, very strongly is this sort of community effort of, you know, send us indicators of compromise. So send all these sort of centralized collection points, these clearing houses, Send us your indicators of compromise. They'll correlate it and then redistribute it out to everybody else. So everyone's aware of what attacks are, are currently happening in the industry, uh, where they're coming from, um, so that you can uh, subscribe to those. And you can, you know, for example, you can tell your infrastructure if you see someone coming from this compromised set of addresses, don't allow my company to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And things like that are really providing significant inroads for companies to be able to protect themselves far above and beyond the capabilities of their existing infrastructure. Their People's current security infrastructure is designed to protect just their environment with no knowledge of the rest of the world. It's really threat intelligence that provides the context of 
this world hacking platform and how it impacts your particular environment. And I, so I think it's becoming much more critical, very mature, and I'm ex- extremely excited to see that it's, it's growing in its community orientation. Now, what are your thoughts on the best ways for organizations to dial it in? I'm thinking specifically of, of how do you manage the spectrum of, of automation versus having actual analysts there, you know, but butts in seats taking a look at these things and having them not be overwhelmed by the amount of data that's being uh, sent to them. Yeah, and that's, that's a really good question because I think what happens is, is that when people think about threat intelligence, I think they think that that they have to have really advanced you know, analytic uh, personnel, you know, building behavior algorithms or doing threat hunting and doing all this correlation. And, and really, I think the nice thing about threat intelligence in general, especially as an overall platform, is that, that there, there are essentially different sort of stages of threat intelligence that you can subscribe to and get tremendous value across those stages. So, you know, as an example, um, I can subscribe to threat intelligence feeds uh, that have been vetted in, in various degrees. But I, I, can get, I can subscribe to threat intelligence feeds. I can have some degree of confidence that those uh, feeds have been vetted. And I can just feed that directly to my infrastructure and say, I trust that the value of this data is accurate. Go ahead and block based on what you see. And I'd say with a 95% accuracy, I'm going to be pretty comfortable that, that those feeds are doing their job and just automatically protecting my infrastructure without any more effort required on my part. There are other things where, you know, there, uh, I'd say there's an emergence of sort of more capable behavior analysis algorithms, which I'm very excited about. I'm a huge proponent and supporter of behavior uh, analytics. And and instead of the infrastructure detecting uh, things that are bad, I'm a huge fan of the infrastructure detecting things that are not known to be good. And so behavior analysis algorithms are starting to to be able to model user and system behavior within your environment, compare that to the rest of the industry. So you get a baseline, not just for you, but for that kind of traffic everywhere. And then start to build you uh, models to say, this doesn't look like it's good traffic. And so that, that is still, that still requires, um, you know, more advanced butts and seats to, be able to you know, act like a credit card company and call that person and say, hey, was that you logging in from uh, North Korea at three o'clock in the morning? Uh, mm-hmm. No, okay, that really was bad. And so, you know, I think the spectrum is pretty broad, uh, but I think that's probably the strength of, of that environment is, you know, depending upon uh, how in-depth you want to go and how capable you want to go, they just do nothing but enhance your existing capability. And, uh, and I think it's growing and uh, getting more mature, and I'm, I'm very excited we're headed in that direction. I want to ask you to put on your uh, prognosticator's cap and uh, look towards the future. Uh, just from the big picture, I mean, where do you think we're headed when it comes to cybersecurity? What, what, uh, what are the tools we're going to need to have? Uh, how are we going to need to structure ourselves uh, as we go forward to protect ourselves? You know, going for the future, I'm going to focus just a little bit on sort of the behavior analytics and threat piece um, just for a moment. But um, I would love to see the the Tesla of of the security environment, um, you know, for for security practitioners. I would love to see that sort of behavior analytics and self-learning model deployed inside of a security system uh, to be able to, you know, to really self-learn what is good and bad behavior. 
uh, and not require so much uh, analytical work on the back end to do validation. And so, you know, those those models exist. That capability exists. That logic exists. It's deployed in other industries uh, for other uses. Uh, and I'd love to see it applied uh, to the security industry. And I think that that sort of uh, artificial intelligence and self-learning platform would be a significant platform to not only de- be able to detect um, bad guys, but eventually self-heal the infrastructure. So imagine a platform that that you know that can monitor what applications you have and what dependencies those applications have and what they use, and be able to compare that to new patches being available, and it know that the application of a patch won't hurt your environment or you know the, hurt, hurt the availability of your environment and just mm-hmm. automatically heal the network. And other ones that know that it may hurt the environment and alert a user to say you need to do some testing before you deploy this patch. Mm. That that kind of situational awareness and knowledge and self healing, um, I think is is going to do w- would provide tremendous value uh, to the security industry and to the stability of corporate environments everywhere. Our thanks to Dale Drew from Zeo Group for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.